The Uluru Statement from the Heart. G'day, I'm Martin Isles, and this is the truth of it. Well, the new government, the Albanese government, says that we'll adopt the Uluru Statement from the Heart in full. Well, what does that mean? There's talk of an Indigenous voice to Parliament, which is a new institution created through an amendment to the Constitution. Uh, that would require, of course, a constitutional referendum, a majority of voters in a majority of states to get that done. There's talk of what they say, Makarata, I hope my pronunciation is okay, or a, which is a treaty or multiple treaties between the government and Indigenous peoples. Uh, uh, that would be pretty simple by comparison. Parliament could presumably do it, and presumably they could legislate the treaty and create certain Indigenous rights. Uh, but then uh, there is also the text of the Uluru Statement itself, which is continually being referred to, the Uluru Statement of the Heart. We're going to adopt that. It's very broad. It's very imprecise. And so I would like to, before getting to those two key substantive points I just mentioned, the, the, the Indigenous voice, the treaty, I'd like to examine the words of the statement and pull out some of my thoughts from it. Um, I'll read the first bit. It says this, we gathered at the 27 national constitutional sorry the 2017 national constitutional convention which is where this uh, statement was made in 2017 coming from all points of the southern sky make this statement from the heart our aboriginal and torres strait islander tribes were the first sovereign nations of the australian continent and as adjacent islands and possessed it under our own laws and customs this our ancestors did according to the reckoning of our culture from creation according to the common law from time immemorial and according to science more than 60,000 years ago this sovereignty is a spiritual notion. The ancestral tie between the land, or Mother Nature, and the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who were born therefrom remain attached thereto, and must one day return thither to be united with our ancestors. This link is the basis of the ownership of the soil, or, better, of sovereignty. It has never been ceded or extinguished, and coexists with the sovereignty of the Crown. I want to pause there before I finish reading this. And I want to pause there because there's an aspect of these Indigenous matters which gets insufficient attention, in my view, and it is the spiritual aspect. There is a distinct spirituality here. And spirituality is never, ever neutral. In fact, Christians must know that the most significant thing about any issue is its spiritual quality. And this statement clearly asserts that it is a pagan statement. And I use the term pagan, not as an insult, but in a technical sense. Uh, paganism is, as in defining the spiritual as being in and of creation itself. And it is bold, if not bolder, than the spiritual preamble to the Constitution, which asserts that we are the people of the colonies at the time were humbly relying on the blessing of Almighty God. Spiritual frameworks are not neutral. Paganism is very real. Its spirits are real. The realms into which it dabbles are real. Dreamtime spirituality is quite a serious thing, which I think we just fail to take seriously. And we say, oh, well, it's cultural and it's some kind of white supremacy to speak against it or to criticize that aspect. Of course it isn't. It's a spiritual issue. Uh, I know not just in theory, but through very revealing conversations that I've had with Indigenous Christians who have been tied up with all of this stuff, with the, the Dreamtime spirits, the witch doctors, the animism, and all that kind of stuff, uh, more besides. I want Indigenous people to be helped and advantaged, and it's precisely why I have to critique this aspect of the culture. Um, and there's no harm in learning things from different cultures, and I think this is one thing that we can, uh, that we can uh, constructively say uh, about Indigenous culture. A major concern I have, therefore, with some of the advocacy in this space is that in the name of cultural preservation, they actually seek to keep Indigenous people in paganism and they treat, say, other faiths, like particularly Christianity, uh, as some kind of colonial influence to be, to be repelled and fought off. This is a spiritual fight there. It's quite real. Um, uh, and it, the, the reality is as well that people fail to acknowledge a huge number of Indigenous communities have actually adopted Christianity and are Christian communities. Um, and as a side note, 
This is also why people like me do find it difficult to get comfortable with welcome to country statements. It's why I've never been able to bring myself to make one. Uh, and even though I acknowledge the Indigenous heritage of Australia and, and, and have no actual conceptual problem with it, but this intrinsically pagan concept of spiritual land may well be implied in welcome to country. So it's just not something I've been able to do. And it's a bridge too far for me because nothing spiritual is neutral. First John 4, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Anyway, continue with the statement uh, to get into the substantive guts of it. It says, how could it be otherwise uh, that peoples possessed the land for 60 millennia and this sacred link disappears from world history in merely the last 200 years? I think that's possibly hyperbole. I mean, it's, it's probably never been more prominently asserted um, in history and society at large. The education curriculum includes it every single year, place names, national days, or welcome to country I just talked about and so on. It's kind of ubiquitous. Um, anyway, they go on. With substantive constitutional change and structural reform, we believe this ancient sovereignty can shine through as a fuller expression of Australia's nationhood. Proportionally, we are the most incarcerated people on the planet. We are not an innately criminal people. Our children are alienated from their families at unprecedented rates. This cannot be because we have no love for them. And our youth languish in detention in obscene numbers. They should be our hope for the future. Now here, finally, we agree on something. I and the framers of this thing agree the condition of our indigenous peoples right now is a dreadful thing. It demands our close attention, our sincere efforts, and it is not good and it's not good enough. Carrying on, these dimensions of our crisis tell plainly the structural nature of our problem. This is the torment of our powerlessness. We seek constitutional reforms to empower our people to take a rightful place in our own country. When we have power over our destiny, our children will flourish. They will walk in two worlds and their culture will be a gift to their country. They go on to establish the First Nations voice to Parliament enshrined in the Constitution. They go on to call for this Makarata Commission to supervise the process of a treaty. Uh, and then they conclude, in 1967 we were counted. In 2017 we seek to be heard. We we leave base camp and start our trek across this vast country. We invite you to walk with us in a movement of the Australian people for a better future. So you can see the notion that adopting this statement in full could mean a lot of things. Um, the Declaration of Sovereignty, for example, if that were to be seriously enacted in law, what are the consequences? Will they be on measuring? So I can't imagine that's going to happen. But then there's the spiritual declaration. And I raise that because I think it might not be the end of it. Uh, is a statement of pagan spirituality going to appear in a constitutional amendment? You know, I sure hope not. Um, that would be something that you'd have to resist. Um, there are two things which are clear in terms of what this could mean, however. First is the Indigenous voice, it's in there. Second is the treaties, and that seems to be where the politics of this is going. Regarding the Indigenous voice to Parliament, what that means is that you change the Constitution, and currently the Constitution defines three limbs of government, legislative, judicial, executive. In the legislative division, it then sets up the House of Representatives in the Senate, the Parliament, and they create laws. In the judicial division, it sets up the courts. Uh, and in the executive, it vests executive power in the Queen, exercised by the Governor-General. And so the idea is to make a new institution, uh, you know, the House of Reps, the Senate, and something else in that legislative limb, which is an Indigenous voice. Some kind of body populated by Indigenous representatives with some kind of office and some kind of influence as yet undefined. That's uh, the Indigenous voice. Then regarding the treaty, or Makarata, it, it could be one of several treaties, or it could be a single treaty. The content is undefined, the mechanism is undefined. One could speculate that the treaty might be enacted as a piece of legislation, uh, which creates certain legal rights and interests on the part of Indigenous groups vis-a-vis uh, -vis the federal government. Now, I want the best for Indigenous communities, and I want their lives to be better, uh, and I want real improvement in this area. 
And I sympathize with many of the concerns that under some of the, the legitimate concerns that underlie some of those who look on this process with a certain affection. But I got to tell you, it makes me a little nervous. Uh, and I'll explain to you why. It's not because of the prospect of enhancing indigenous affairs. It is first because I do not trust the people who would be putting this together. Second, because I do not like division. And third, because I think that the actual solutions to the problem are far less grandiose, far less political, far less about votes and institutions and Canberra, and they're much closer to the ground and they're much more coalface and they're much harder and grittier and longer term. Regarding my first concern, trust. I don't trust these political types to avoid smuggling in two agendas, and they are the two agendas of the critical race theorists. First, to permanently divide people on the basis of skin colour. Okay? Second, to implant some kind of some kind of trouble, some kind of cancer into an otherwise good system to corrupt it and to start to tear it apart long term. That is their MO. That is how they work. They divide and they are cancer, gnawing away at good things and bringing them down. Look at the USA. This issue of race relations is destroying the country because of these critical race theorist people. Look at South Africa. It's gotten into the institutions and the culture where it is destroying the country. And here's the thing. Australia does not have a cultural awareness of race relations in the same way as other countries. Because we were, up until 10 years ago, probably still, and still are, let's be honest, but it was even better 10 years ago, the most successful multicultural country on the face of the planet. And nobody cared about race. But of course, that's not how the critical race theorists work. That's not how they do their work. That's not how they get their revolution rolling and start gnawing away at things and dividing people up. This force, it needs a foothold. That's why the recent education curriculum review saw critical race theory implanted right across the curriculum. They need footholds. And I think they're looking at this and smacking their lips and saying, Muha, here's our chance. In fact, they are. We know they are. They're everywhere in politics. So that's regarding trust. I don't trust this to be ideologically pure, if I could put it that way, or free of ideological baggage. Regarding division, um, this is my second concern. Just to note that division is a very powerful force in any society. Uh, you saw, you know, just as an example, the hatred and contempt which was unleashed on people who didn't want to get vaccinated. Uh, when really we should have just got on with life and said, well, there's a minority who will choose that and carried on. But that's not how it worked. The government set out the dog whistle on division. Ah, there's people here who are no good. Uh, now, this is a different context, of course. However, this is quite serious in the sense that you are splitting the government between racial groups. That's a huge thing to do. It's a massive division to entrench. That really concerns me. And the Referendum Council said that this was important because Indigenous people make up only 3% of the population and find it hard to have a say on issues of concern to them. I think that's very simplistic. You know, currently 4.5% of the current parliamentarians are Indigenous, uh, and most of them come from parts of the country with higher Indigenous populations, so they're representing the community in the Parliament that already exists. Uh, and the system operates actually with a full knowledge that, you know, you can break down society into an infinite number of politically relevant identity groups. And you're never going to have perfect representation of every single one of those groups. And so the system is set up to accommodate that. Uh, and that's why in the lawmaking process, you will find that um, um, the, 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 interest, the various interest groups and peoples and, and that, that laws affect are consulted. Uh, their consultation is recorded. 
and it is integrated squarely into the lawmaking process. That's a, a huge aspect of the entire work of Parliament. That's why groups like ACL exist. We go in there and talk from the Christian perspective, and I must say, Christian perspective is uh, pretty soundly ignored a lot of the time, but other groups don't have that problem, especially Indigenous groups. Um, and so I just say, look, there is already a Parliament operating for all. I'd kind of rather focus on you know, working that out nicely rather than a new body that, that gives this kind of two-stream government or divides the government on race grounds. That's a huge deal from division perspective in a culture. Uh, we are one race, you know, we've got to be clear about that. Thirdly, my third concern, because the actual solutions are far less grandiose. They're close to the ground. They are unglamorous. They're not up in the clouds winning votes in political slogans. There are Indigenous communities who want to self-determine, who want to get ahead, who want to make a better life for their children. And I say that not just as a bystander. I say that because I've actually been to some of them and I've spent a lot of time speaking at length with elders and so forth in these communities. And I've organised support for some of the people who are working very closely with them day in and day out on the long, slow road to a better life and a better community. And I take my hat off to those people who are there doing the hard work. And there are people. But you know what hits me? And what did hit me with each, particularly on a trip I did uh, in November 2020, I think it was, um, uh, when I spoke to Indigenous elders in a community that really did want to get ahead and had a plan for its future and economic independence, um, uh, do you know what they told me? They told me that the government was their problem. They told me overwhelmingly that the government wouldn't let them do what they needed to do, that it was a bog of regulation, which was stifling everything in red tape. And they told me story after story, which would put your hair on end in terms of this mess of corruption, that is the government institutions which are administering Indigenous affairs. And it's because they're so full of money, they don't know what to do with it. And money, like a honeypot, attracts bees and will attract corruption. Um, and the stories would put uh, the, the most dysfunctional developing country to shame in terms of corruption. And these people are infantilized on leashes. They don't even own their own land. The land's council owns it, which is not the same as the, the people owning it. And they're on a leash and their, their, their dependency is entrenched and they can't break free of it. Um, they tell me that the government is the problem. And the things that I saw, if that stuff was happening in major cities to influential people, it would be all over the news. But it's hidden in the outback. And these communities, they want to do better and they need support to do better. And they need support, however, not from bureaucracy, but from people who care. These communities need, frankly, missionary types. Those who are on the ground living a life of sacrifice with a heart for the welfare of the people and the necessary connections to get the help that those people need to advance. Then they need to be given the freedom to pursue what they need to pursue and they need to be allowed to take responsibility for their destiny free from the shackles of government bureaucracy rules lawmaking and frankly corruption the government needs to let good people do good things it needs to incentivize them if possible uh, we need a, a generation of people who are prepared to go into indigenous communities and do the personal work of help uh, the hard, the gritty, the long-term, the slow work, you know, as missionaries used to do. Um, that was a big part of what they did. I'm not saying it should be the same, but I'm saying something like that. And that's what hits me when I go to these communities. I'm encouraged, so encouraged by how many good people are doing good things in these parts of the world. But I'm also discouraged by the overbearing presence of government regulation and ineptitude. So <laughs> the problem is possibly more top-heavy and the solution is more bottom heavy. And we're getting that pretty wrong here. Finally, before I close, 
If we are really trying to find a baseline from which to advance all of this, if we're really trying to find a way to reset the relationship, to start afresh with a right view of things and a, and a vision, there is one solution only. And it's the radical Christian idea which changes everything, which changed the world. It is forgiveness. Both indigenous culture and the modern West need to learn something from Jesus. And I say and the modern West because we've forgotten this as well. Forgiveness. To quote Psalm 103, you have not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. But as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is your mercy towards those who fear you. As far as the east is from the west, so far have you removed our transgressions from us. You know, how else could we ever relate to God in any way except that he utterly and totally forgive and wipe out the transgression and put the past to one side and start anew? The fact is we absolutely couldn't. Hence we're commanded, forgive as God in Christ forgave you. That's the secret. But if we're doing, you know, we no longer need a sorry day. Sorry has been said. The overwhelming majority, indeed surely all of the nation, want to move forward and want to make things right and look to a better day. But if we're doing that through the lens of recompense for wrongs, it will never be enough because the wrongs are too grave. If we're doing that through a lens of trying to undo the past, it will never work because the past happened. And this is the power of forgiveness. Otherwise, it will be sorry every year and striving and endless despondency. Can you imagine running any other relationship like that? Imagine running a marriage like that. Sorry day. Apologizing afresh on the anniversary of a wrongdoing every single year. It'd be toxic. The marriage would fall apart. It wouldn't work. It doesn't work. Forgiveness is the missing ingredient. It's time to forgive. And yes, to forget. On all sides. And just live in unity as one people together. Because I think we all want to. The goodwill exists but agendas, and frankly, all this political malarkey gets in the way.